Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller. And today we have a very special person, Lisa Wexler. She's been my friend. She is a judge, a probate judge, and she has her own talk show. In Greenwich, the Lisa Wexler Show. So I'm really, thank you so much for coming here today, Lisa. And I'm so honored that you would join us and tell us about how we're going to save money when we die. Okay, absolutely. (laughs) That's one of my specialties. So Lisa is a probate judge. Can you just tell us a little bit what that means? Yes. And actually in New York State, it's called surrogate's court, which, you know, in Maryland, it's called orphan's court. Don't even start. But in most states, it's called probate court. And a probate, most people recognize when they hear the word probate, that it means when you've passed away and you own something, how do you get that titled into somebody else's name, right? You die, you own a piece of real estate, now what? What happens? So the reason that there exists something called probate court is because it indicates a process by which ownership of an asset goes into someone else's name. So what happens if you die and you don't have a will and you don't have anything to probate? So where does it go? Well, no, that's two different questions. If you don't have anything to probate, it means that maybe you don't have any assets that -hmm. would pass through probate court, which means that maybe your assets, if you have any, are like life insurance, where you've already designated a beneficiary, so you don't need probate court. But if you ask what happens if you don't have a will, that's another story. So let's say you have that real estate and you haven't made a will, And so nobody knows who you want that building to go to. The state steps in with a law. It calls you intestate, which technically means without a will, intestate. And it says, well, we're going to presume that you wanted your property to go to your next of kin. So if you're married and you don't have any children, it'll all go to your wife. Well, I hope nobody dies that way. But a lot of people do. Even in my community, a lot of people do. So let me ask you, Lisa, we all read, there's so many people that have left New York. Mm -hmm. I think they're now up to 480,000 people. And a lot of them are going to Florida. Can you explain why people would go in their older age to a place like that as far as what they're going to be left with? Is that part of it? You know, there's a lot of reasons why people want to go to Florida, including the weather. Well, right, obviously. But sometimes people are thinking about resituating their entire financial picture. One of the reasons is that Florida, as a matter of their constitution, doesn't have an income tax and it doesn't have an estate tax. No estate tax. No estate tax at all. That's huge. So what is is the estate tax in New York? The estate tax in New York varies. It starts at, I believe, around 3% and goes to a high of 16% on a progressive scale. And the numbers are really complicated. They're like $555,640. And then you go to the next place. So I couldn't recite it by memory. Okay. But I do know this. More or less... If you have under five to six million dollars, which is the vast majority of people, Mm -hmm. they don't owe any estate tax in New York estate tax. And they won't owe any federal because the federal tax is even higher. It's around 12.2 million. 
If you die with over $6 million of assets that New York says are ours, located in New York State, then you will start to pay a graduated estate tax on that money. So what is the maximum? So the maximum amount, well, it tops out at 16% of a number over a certain number. Okay. Well, I would think that even though it sounds like a lot, the 20% of the people that have left New York have been high income earners. So you're saying that they, when, when they move to a state like Florida, part of the reason to do this is because there'll be no estate tax, is what you're saying. It could be one of the f- contributing factors yes. and also income tax. Right. I mean, New York State income tax. But, you're, but you're the, the, but the expert. You're the but expert. I mean, like, it's a big deal. I will say this. If you're moving to Florida, you should be aware of something. In Florida, you really don't want to go to a probate court at all. And I'm not a Florida licensed attorney, but this I know. Because in Florida, probatable assets, those that pass through probate court, if you have an attorney that represents you through this, they will take a 3% fee of your assets, of your probatable asset. That's a big number. Yeah. So for a lot of people, they want to have a non-probatable estate and they put their assets in a trust and they avoid going to court altogether. And a lot of people do that in New York too. So let's talk about the estate when you're alive. We understand now what happens when you pass away and why it makes some sense. So in New York versus Florida, again, I'm using the two because that's where most people are graduating to. Yeah. So what is the transfer tax? If I want to buy real estate in New York and then I'm selling it and I want to buy in Florida. Right. So what is the difference in the transfer recording tax in New York versus Florida? Okay. So obviously I'm not admitted in Florida, but I did do some research. So in New York, we have one of the most expensive transfer taxes and there are several levels of it. In New York state, which we call the conveyance tax. It's for everybody who transfers property in New York State. Almost every state, Florida, Connecticut, has that, has a basic conveyance tax. But if you're lucky enough to live in New York City and you're transferring property in New York City, there's another conveyance tax just on top of that for New York City. So Florida has a conveyance tax too, but I looked it up and it's just much cheaper. It's just a much less high number. To give you an example, In Florida, the maximum amount of conveyance tax you can pay, according to what Florida publishes about itself, is still under $2,500. If you buy a $2 million condo in New York, your conveyance tax alone is about 15 grand. So you're giving me a lot of reason to move to Florida, Lisa. Well, no, listen, my whole family's in Florida, as you well know, Suzanne, and it's a beautiful place. But conveyance taxes or estate taxes are just one aspect of life. There's still nothing like New York City. There's nothing like it. So how are we going to keep the people here? Well, we're going to keep them here with Broadway, which I know we both love. And we're going to keep the people here with maybe taking a, another look and a revisit of the tax burden, which I hope that our politicians will do. I mean, are that's you, an issue. I read today that ha- Kathy Hochul is trying to eliminate zoning, the zoning laws for the individual states. Did you hear anything about this? I did. So let me give you a little perspective. So my base is Connecticut. It's what I know very well. Mm -hmm. The Lisa Wexler Show podcast is all about what's going on in Connecticut. And Connecticut is in the throes of a legislature that has been proposing a lot of bills to centralize control over land use, which is to say they want Hartford, and I guess Kathy Hochul wants Albany, to decide questions about what should go on your street. How many apartments per acre should you be allowed to have? Should you be able to have more density if you're located near a train station than not? Who should make these decisions about coastal issues, about flooding, about whether or not there should be a multifamily situation or 
you should keep things at a quarter acre, a third acre, an acre zoning, whatever it is. And my understanding is Kathy Hochul is taking a page from California, which just decided in the last year to create bills from Sacramento that eviscerate single family zoning. So and just she explain wants to, to do us, that kind of thing. Explain to us simply. Yes. What is the difference between single family zoning versus multifamily zoning? Like okay. What will be the objective okay. here? Okay. For affordable housing, that's what I'm hearing. Okay, yes. So I'll explain what the law is yes. and then we'll go back to policy okay. because they have to do with each other. So the idea is that when we think about planning neighborhoods, and this happened starting from the 1930s when we were moving from an agrarian economy to something else, right? Neighborhoods were planned, Levittown, all these other places were planned, and towns said, well, what are we going to do with our land? And how much building, how much coverage do we want to have on a single piece of land? And that's how we started ending up with our cities and right. with our communities. That is called zoning. Got that's it. what zoning is. Zoning is, okay, I'm going to allow a commercial building to be on Main Street, but outside Main Street, on Elm Street and on Maple Street, I'm only going to allow you to build a house. And who dictates that? Each local? Each local. Each local. Each local city, mm -hmm. each local town. In Connecticut, we have 169 different towns and communities. New York probably has a lot more. You decide that. And typically, the people that are in charge of these are your planning and zoning commissioners. Some of them are elected and some of them are appointed, depending on your town or community. So let me get this straight. She's trying to take that power away from the locals? That's what and she has said. Oh, she that's... wants to centralize a lot of that power into Albany. Now you talk about policy. Okay. And this is coming with the affordable housing piece. So some people have taken a look at New York and Connecticut, and they've said they're very segregated as an actual matter of the way people live. Too many black people live here, too many white people live here, too many Hispanic people live here, and we don't think it's fair. And when we look at the history of redlining, which was a history of lending to certain neighborhoods, and we saw discrimination and prejudice, and we look at the history of restrictive covenants, where there would be places that would say no Jews and dogs allowed in the particular yes. deed, people said, you know what? As an effort to repair reparations, right? As an effort to make things better going forward, we have to start with zoning because we think that zoning in and of its face has been discriminatory. And so this effort to address historic inequities is coming that way. Now, I will just say this. As a matter of actual fact, in my opinion, and I'm an environmentalist, and I also was on the Planning and Zoning Commission of my own town and mm -hmm. the Zoning Board of Appeals for six years. I think that a top-down approach is not the correct approach. I think that local cities and communities still have to be able to decide because they know best how their towns should look. I also think that for most of us, the most important investment we'll ever make is our own home. It's the largest investment we'll ever make. And therefore, we make it with an expectation that our neighborhood will continue to look a certain way. And if all of a sudden there's a commercial building that's going to be down the block, or our next door neighbor's house can be torn down and can be four units on one acre and I'm still only the one on one, I think people have an investment in the growth of their community and those decisions should be made locally. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. 
but they should definitely be made locally. So what I understand is that it's she wants to do this close to train stations. So if I'm in Greenwich, Connecticut, or Bridgehampton, or Southampton, or wherever, I could have as many homes as possible right there. Well, that's, that's some of the some of the proposals are as many as forty per acre, right? So they'll they'll build a multifamily. And the thing is that the model to address affordable housing inequities appears to be building multifamily apartment buildings. It doesn't appear to be building townhouse communities. It doesn't appear to be building single family homes on smaller lots. Tell us more about that. So what makes you make the leap that just because we're building 40 homes on one piece of property, there'll be affordable housing? Maybe they're going to be beautiful condos. Well, so it depends. So in Connecticut, in order to avail yourself of the affordable housing benefits, you have to come to your town. And depending on the town, we have the statute called 830G. It can be either up to 10, 20 or 30 percent. If I'm a developer, Suzanne, and I want to put these 40 units on one acre, I can say to my local zoning community, I can say to my local planning and zoning board, I have the right to do this regardless of your zoning, as long as I'm putting forth 30% affordable housing. And you have to let me do it. Now, the thing about the affordable housing is, it doesn't have to be that way in perpetuity in Connecticut. It only has to be that way for 40 years. Afterwards, the apartments will come back to market rental. And one of the biggest arguments that's happening, again, in Connecticut, it's just starting in New York. You're going to see this all start to migrate to New York. New York, the, meaning the boroughs and... Well, meaning this argument about affordable housing, because Governor Hochul has decided to make it part of our platform. So you're going to see this conversation starting yes. in New York. One of the big things to remember is that multifamily housing and renting an apartment doesn't create generational wealth. No one's ever become rich out of renting an apartment. So if you really want to redress historic inequities of black people and have them become wealthier, then there's one initiative happening in Connecticut, a smaller one, help people get a down payment on their house. Mm-hmm. Help people build generational wealth. Give them a break to step up so that they too can become a homeowner. But no one ever said when they grew up they wanted to rent an apartment as a way of having wealth for their children and grandchildren. It doesn't work that way. So creating all of this, quote, affordable housing doesn't really address the historic inequity of trying to have people become richer over time. So let me understand this. What you're telling us is that you die. It's more expensive to die in New York. It's more expensive to trade real estate well, in New York. And now trade we're trying real estate for sure. And now for we're going sure. to and now we're going to have in some of our neighborhoods, we're going to be able to get much more affordable housing because they'll be able to build it for less money. It's a question of density, affordable. It's yes. a question of pushing back on local zoning control. We're gonna to have to see how it plays out in New York. We'll have to see how many people sort of wake up to this. Right now in Connecticut, it's tremendously contentious. We're in the middle of our Hartford legislative session. We don't know how it's going to go. We don't know how it's going to go. But it's actually tremendously consequential. Well, this is very informative, Lisa. So what else can you tell us about dying rich? Dying rich. First of all, you have to accumulate money to die rich. I will tell you this, that a lot of This is what I would like to tell you, that there are two kinds of lawyers as we age that help with estate planning. Mm -hmm. And most people don't realize that there are two different specialties. And I want you to know this. As we get older, most people should have a will because it's a good idea to appoint somebody as your executor to round up everything that you've owned in this life and decide what to do with it give this one to that, sell this to that. You basically give general guidance in your will, but you want someone you trust to do it. But what most people don't realize as they get older is that they may have to be in a nursing home. 
Okay, that's real life. You need that long-term care insurance. You need the long-term care insurance. And my advice is, instead of going to a generalist lawyer, you go to a lawyer who specializes in something called elder law. Mm-hmm. Because it is only those who really know the nuts and bolts of elder law that can tell you how to plan your aging wealth and your life in accordance with what it may take to qualify for Medicaid or get disqualified from Medicaid. So it's not your average real estate lawyer, and it isn't your average trust and estates lawyer. But they're also confusing. They are. I, I don't even. Under, I have, I've met with them, and I'm, I. Know. I. They don't speak English to me. No, it's very hard, isn't it? I know. So how do I've you seen pick some of those documents, Suzanne? I know. They how do you pick hard. a good estate attorney? It's a really good question. First of all, as I said, if you are somebody who thinks you're not going to have to pay an estate tax, so if you're under five million in assets, you don't need to go to a very fancy lawyer but you ought to get a consultant from an elder lawyer because the truth is that most of us are going to need some long-term care as we age. And figuring out how much money can be in our pocket or our spouse's pocket and when can we gift that money to our children if we want to do that anyway, right? Those deadlines, those amounts of money, what we can, quote, spend down for ourselves before we have to not transfer any other money, only an elder law lawyer will know that. And to find an elder law lawyer, if you're living in Nassau County or right here in Manhattan or any kind of county, go to your county bar association, see who belongs in the elder law section. Those are the people who keep up with the law. Those are the ones you want. So the trust attorneys and estate attorneys may not know, understand how to protect yourself from Medicare That's correct. for if you need a nursing home, That's if you correct. need home care. That's right. So the, so what does a trust do for you? So a trust and estates lawyer is somebody who's thinking generally someone in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, who may want to make a will now for the next five to 10 year plan. But if you're already in your 70s, in my opinion, unless you're very wealthy, you need to speak with that elder law attorney because the elder law attorney will also do your will and your power of attorney and your end of life documents, but they'll understand Medicaid planning and it's key. How often do you think we should examine our wills and redo them? At what point? Five years. Every five five years. So every five years. People die. People change. You know what happens a lot, Suzanne? You will, typically you will name your spouse as your executor. And then they die. That's true. (laughs) That's true. But also, if your spouse isn't your executor, you'll name your best friend. Mm -hmm. But you know what? You're 75. Your best friend is 75. They don't want to be your executor anymore. They don't want to. So... Wills are good five-year plans. You take a look at them every five years. Things change. Someone who you might have wanted to be a guardian for your kids, you realize you haven't seen in five years, and if God forbid something happened to you, that's the last place your kid would ever want to go. You must see very interesting stories in probate. Can you just share one with us before we... I I have a million. I have a one... Okay, so many years ago, there was a famous writer, and he passed away. And he passed away and he left his estate half to his brother and half to the woman who had just started walking his dog six months before he died. Wow. His kids weren't that happy about it, his three kids, because they were completely disinherited from his will. And left to the dog walker. Half to the dog walker. Okay. And what happened was, and it becomes a longer story. So what happened was, and one of the children who was a litigator decided to challenge the will, a will contest right? Flat out will contest. And someone had made a video of him doing the will, which was very helpful to me in terms of evidence as the judge. Did he he have his, was he lucid when he did this? He appeared to be lucid. The argument was that he had something called wet brain, Suzanne. 
because he was a chronic alcoholic. And one of the things that the dog walker did regularly was make sure that he had cartons of vodka that were delivered to his house because that's how he survived. That's how he lived. Wet brain? Wet brain was the condition that was testified to me that is a condition that can happen for people with chronic alcoholism. Okay, didn't know there was a term for that. There is a term for that. You okay. learn all kinds of things as a propane judge. So anyway, what happened was the children challenged the will on the ground that he couldn't have been competent because he was a long-term alcoholic. Because he had wet brain. Because he had wet brain. <laughs> but the truth is that the bar for making a will is very low. The bar for making a will is you just have to know what you're doing when you're doing it. And the video showed, because the attorney walked him through it, that he knew exactly what he was doing when he did it. And in fact, they put a power of attorney in front of him and he said, no, I don't want to do that. Oh. So he, he really sort of knew exactly what he was so doing. So the dog walker got the money. The dog walker got half the money. She did. How much money? It was mostly the house. And what had happened was he had told his attorney years before that no matter what, he didn't want the kids to have his house. Because you know what happened? He was, the kids had decided to exercise tough love on him. And they hadn't spoken to him for three years oh. because they wanted him to quit drinking. And oh. he had enrolled himself and he had gone to a place and he had hitchhiked home and his kids wouldn't, the drying out place, the sober facility. He never forgave them for that. Oh. So he disinherited them. Well, Lisa, that's a very interesting story. <laughs> and thank you for sharing and thank you for doing what you're doing. And I know you do a great job oh, on that you. stand. And I, I listen to your podcast all the time. Thank and you, Suzanne. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Pleasure. Bye.